be done Nothing you can sing that can't be sung Nothing you can say that you can learn how to play the game Hi, I'm Kid O'Toole, the author of Michael Jackson FAQ, the ultimate guide to the music and art of Michael Jackson, which will be coming out on Backbeat Books uh, later this year, and author of Songs We Were Singing, a collection of essays on the music of the Beatles, due out in August 2015. And I'm Caboodle, formerly Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of three books in the John Lennon series, Should Have Been There, Shivering Inside, and She Loves You, and of the upcoming 2017 book, Should Have Known Better. And together, we're Kit and Caboodle. This is the first of six shows that we'll do this year on the John Lennon Hour, discussing, debating, and delving into the music of the Beatles. So, tonight, in honor of Valentine's Day, Kit and I are going to stand by our man. We're going to be asking the question, who wrote the better love songs? Paul? Or, da, 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 John, I'm going to state the case of John Winston Lennon, love ballad, composer, extraordinaire. In fact, the composer of our opening song tonight, All You Need Is Love. And I'm going to uphold the very solid case of the elegant uh, melodies and voice of Sir James Paul McCartney. Woohoo! John would have been surreal given the chance, but of course that's a topic for another day. So, Kit. I'm going to give you the choice. First shot across the bow or last, you choose. We can start with a song by Macca or end with a song by Macca. You decide. Well, Jude, I think this is the John Lennon hour, so I will let you kick this off with a John song. All right, I'll kick it off, and then you'll get the ball at the two-minute warning. Now, guys, before we get started with our little Super Bowl here, I have to tell you that, sadly, because of the rules and regs of Blog Talk Radio, Kit and I aren't permitted to play the entire record for you. We're only going to get to play about a 30-second snippet of the tune, and we apologize. But what we're going to encourage you to do is, once the show is over with, not before, but once it's over with, play the whole song on your own, and you be the judge for... Paul or for John or or the beautiful voice of Paul but I'm not trying to influence anybody or anything <laughs> okay guys let's get started by listening to one of John's most romantic ballads now this is a song that's played at weddings all across the world and it's a song that ostensibly was written for Cynthia Lennon to whom John of course was wed at this point in his life but I think it was not. I think it's about something entirely different. Let's listen to it. Here is a clip from In My Life. There are places I remember Rolling Stone places in my life at number five, guys, number five in the list of the 100 greatest Beatles songs ever written. It beats out Hey Jude, Something, Revolution, She Loves You, 
Norwegian wood, blackbird, and a ton of others. I mean, it's number five in 100. The only songs that Rolling Stone rates above in my life are Paul's Beautiful Yesterday, John Strawberry Fields, and of course their communal classic, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which comes in at number one. Those top three songs, you got to admit, are classics, but not one of them touches your heart the way In My Life does. This is John Lennon at his most vulnerable, open, and honest. He is telling you exactly who he is and exactly how he feels. Now, John ordinarily was either angry or regretful or in pain or lonely, full of invective, but he is very rarely the person you hear in this song, a young boy full of homesickness and love. First and foremost, In the song, in verse 1, John reminds us that he's a boy from Liverpool, always. There are places I remember in my life, though some have changed, or his opening words. And you know what? Instantly, we're back on those broken sidewalks and those cobbled streets of Liverpool with that cold Merseyside air mingled with diesel fumes and the smell of the Mersey River. But interestingly enough, at that moment, we're also... In our own hometown, we're walking those nostalgic streets of our own childhood, and we're remembering. John gives us that. One of my favorite authors, Sue Monk Kidd, wrote a great quote. She said, you can go other places, all right. You can live on the other side of the world, but you'll never leave home. And this song proves that. In fact, and I'm sure all of you Beatle aficionados know this, that the original lyrics for In My Life included a verse on which John is on that very famous number 27 Canning Street bus. He's meandering through the colorful streets of Woolton all the way towards city center. He goes down Smithdown Road, and he passes Penny Lane, and he goes through Toxic and the Dingle. He sees Calderstones Park and finally the dock. These are the places that, for John, still spelled love and still spelled home. Now, in New York City... In 79, above John's bed in the Dakota hung a framed picture of Corey Bank Grammar, which was his Liverpool High School. And, you know, when Pete Shotton and John were going there, they absolutely hated the place, couldn't wait to get away. But here, John's much older now, away from Corey Bank Grammar, and in writing this song, even though he's meandered away from the streets of Woolton, he's a famous Beatle at the time that he writes this, he tells you in this song and later in that photograph that his heart still wings back to the Mersey River and back to Liverpool. But that's not all that the song is about. It's also a tribute for those he's lost. Oh, those places had their moments with lovers and friends. I still can recall some are dead and some are living. In my life, I love them all. And immediately, we we have faces all around us. The face of his dad, whom he thinks at this point he really abandoned him. He doesn't believe, Freddie, that he didn't. His cherished Uncle George and by unjudging Stu, his soulmate, and of course by Julia. And the heartbreak of John's childhood is all around us in this rare moment of uncloaked honesty. We see the faces of the people who, through their vanishing, broke his heart and broke his spirit. But there are other faces there, too, and they're more hopeful. The face of Pete Shotton, of Paul and George, his high school friends and his art college mates, and then later the face of Ringo and Cynthia. 
she's there too, loving him through the good and the bad and the ugly. You know, there's this grossly oversimplified legend that prior to this song, all the songs that John wrote were just little commercial ditties. And that's crap because if you listen to Help, or I'll Cry Instead, or If I Fail, which were all autobiographical. They're all powerful. But there was one critic who had this to say about In My Life, and it was John's harshest critic. He said this was John's first real major piece of work. And that critic, of course, was John Lennon. Songs like If I Fail and I'll Cry Instead are all about the same muse that this song is about. And that, of course, is his mother, Julia. He's revealing his love for his homeland, for his hometown, for his friends, for his heritage. And then he plays his hand. Listen to what he says. But of all these friends Later, John said, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. She's the girl in this song. She's the girl in every song, including I'm a Loser, Hide Your Love Away, I'll Cry Instead, and all the others. But this one time, John isn't focusing on his loss. Instead, he's focusing on his love. And it's that love that makes this such a powerful, powerful song. It's inspired by Smokey Robinson, whom John loved, and it's enhanced by this great instrumental break on piano by George Martin, of course, played live very slowly and then speeded up to create that Baroque effect. Paul said that John wrote this song completely by himself. In fact, Paul said, I went off and worked on something on the Mellotron, and John wrote the song while I was away. This is one of John's masterpieces. It's timeless in my life. All right, Kit, over to you, girl. All right. Well, gosh, I mean, you can't argue too much with that selection. That's for sure. But but I am going to uh, present one that's a little bit different. Um, This is, uh, I mean, let's face it, Paul wrote so many wonderful love songs with the Beatles. Hard to choose just one, right? But this one, I think, is underrated. Uh, In fact, if Paul is listening by any chance tonight, I really hope he would play this live someday. Would love to hear it. And that is I Will, uh, the track from the White Album. Deceptively simple. You know, it's, it's like many Beatles songs where you think they're simple, and then you try to play it yourself on guitar, and it's a really different story. But this also has some uh, different uh, thematic, you know, some complexities. You know, it isn't as simple as it seems. Let's listen to a little bit of I Will, and then we'll talk a little more about it. Easy to be near you for the 
the songs that I've chosen of Paul's represent, you know, we're going to talk about the number three here. You know, John's number was, was number nine. Uh, this is going to be number three. Not only three songs, but these represent three periods of Paul's career. Um, you know, the Beatles years, the solo slash wings years, and then the, sol the, the real solo years. But these also represent three stages of love. You know, we're talking about the early stages of young love, you know, falling in love for the first time. Then we're talking about, you know, sort of what I call the be for better or for worse stage of love, where you have to go through, get through some obstacles. And finally, the sort of the golden, you know, sort of the golden years that, that, uh, that you're spending together, the more content years. This song, I Will, is about the first stages of love. This is about, you know, finding your true love, your soulmate. It's, it's very idealistic, and it's just beautiful. This was written during the time that they were studying with the Maharishi in India. As we know, this um, was a very productive period for the Beatles. They all wrote hundreds of songs. In this case, uh, Paul had the melody, said in uh, Many Years From Now, that wonderful uh, Barry Miles uh, biography, he had this melody in his head for a while and wasn't sure what to do with it. And he um, ended up talking with friends who were with him in India, um, including Donovan, who, as we know, worked with Paul on a number of tracks, to sort of get their view. Ultimately, Paul said he wrote all the words himself. He wanted to just get some feedback. Now, this is such a, as I said, a deceptively simple song, and here's another reason why. When the Beatles finally recorded the track, it took 67 takes. Wow. 67. Yeah. Wow. I, it, isn't that amazing? I, I mean, it's, it really is. So it just, it was a, a long, long process. Uh, George did not take part in the, in the sessions. It was uh, Paul on guitar, bass, and of course lead vocals. Uh, John was on percussion. Uh, you know, he was uh, kind of a, a interesting way. He was beating sort of a piece of, of wood with some metal. Uh, and then Ringo, of course, on the rest of the percussion. And what I love about it, um, in addition to that galloping rhythm and that soft guitar, is the the whole ish, the uh, theme that he uses of falling in love and love itself as music. I know this is a theme that's been explored before. I you know nothing terribly new, but I love that line, and we just heard a bit of it. Uh, at one, at, and when at last I find you, your song will fill the air. Sing it loud so I can hear you. I, I absolutely love those lines because it's like he's, you know, searching for that one unique person, and he and he's looking for someone who has their own voice. And when he finds that person, when he sings, your song will fill the air. Isn't that what it's like when you first fall in love with somebody? You know, they're everywhere. You, you, you know, they're, they're just always with you. You know, you're so, it's such a heady experience. And I think those words communicate that so well. And, uh, and his vocals, of course, are, are just spot on. They're, they're gentle uh, as the song requires. And, you know, it just, just lines all the things you do endear you to me. I just have always found it incredibly touching. Um, and it's a song that, that deserves more attention for its, its depiction of that heady feeling of falling in love. And, uh, and as I said, Paul, if you're listening tonight, please play this song live. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear it. So that, that's my first pick. We lived in Morrisville, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> right after 9-11, about 40 miles from New York City. 
and the pilot of the second plane lived in Morrisville. And so the funeral was held in Morrisville. And this was his song, I Will. And this was what they played at the funeral. So every time I hear that, it takes me right back to those those days after 9-11 and it just you know has a whole emotional level added to it because of that you know oh oh, yeah yeah beautiful song beautiful song well moving from two gorgeous songs we're now going to move into that period that kit just talked about that for better or for worse period and we we tend to think of love songs really as songs of euphoria or happiness, but this song is not that way. This song is written in the vein of some of the songs from the 60s, like Tears of a Clown or Walk Away Renee or What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, and of course, Paul's Beautiful, Beautiful Yesterday. This is a tragic love song. It's a song in which John felt that love was slipping away, slipping away, and he's angry and he's full of regret. It is, of course, I'm Losing You, which was released on Double Fantasy. Now, this song was written in those really angst-ridden days of 1980 when John and Yoko, for all intents and purposes, I mean, this was really hushed up, But they were separated again. I mean, there was the lost weekend, which certainly was no weekend. It was 18 months that they were separated. And then John came back, and now they're they're separated again. He's living in Bermuda. She's living in New York. He is constantly trying to make it up with her, and she won't have anything to do with him. You hear the grim details of his life in this song, how he's trying to get her on the phone, he can't. He's trying to get in touch with her. She won't answer him. And she won't take his phone calls. She won't take letters. She won't take any contact from him. And he's beating himself up over the fact that she says she's not getting enough from him. You know, enough what? Enough sex, enough communication, enough love, enough anything. And no matter what he does, All that she says is, I don't want anything to do with you because you remind me of all that bad, 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 bad stuff. Well, how does John react to that? He screams, what the hell am I supposed to do? I mean, he's furious. So I'm losing you rocks with angry power. You have fury. You have resentment. You have the pain that once again, love is bringing into John's life. Denied. Again, denied. You have this pounding, overwhelming guitar, this heartbeat-sounding heavy drum, both of them together banging their heads against this wall. You just see them beating their heads on this brick wall of frustration, and there is real tension in this song. It really prefigures what's going to come in the next few years, if only John could have seen. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Guns N' Roses, Nirvana. And when Rand and I lived in Kansas City, Missouri, there was an alternative bar that all of the cutting-edge 90s groups played in. And when you walked into the bar and you turned around and looked, there was a framed picture of John Lennon over the entrance door. And the words that were written beneath it are, he invented us. So there you have it. And that's really what I'm losing you is about that 1990s sound. Now, besides having this great, intense sound, it's really forward thinking as far as its lyrics. It's very complex. It has all these references to all of the struggles in John's life, not just what's going on with Yoko, the Valley of Indecision. 
You know, you can see that little boy being placed in between Julia and Fred. And whether he actually had to make a decision or not, he watched his parents battle over him. And he watched them try to decide who would have him in the valley of indecision. You see the fear that he has that he's going to be abandoned and left behind. You see the pain from Stu's death, Uncle George's death. No one ever loves him the way he wants them to, including, right now, his relationship with Yoko. There's some references here to the passion, to Christ carrying the cross. Because John says, you know, do you still want me to carry, you want me to carry the cross? And he's going through his own struggle, his own climb up that hill of Golgotha. He's been rejected, he's been beat up, he's been scourged, he's he's really at the end of his rope. And so bloody and battered, he sings a song that's almost too personal to listen to. You kind of feel as if you're prying into something pretty private and, and concealed. It's deeply electric, it's powerful, and this hypnotic music keeps you from walking away from this private moment. It draws you in and it makes you listen to John, who is sitting, confused, in a room where no one knows him. He's in the stranger's room, and this is what he sings. Somehow the wires have crossed Communication's lost Can't even get you on the telephone I gotta shout about it Well, there it is, that song of For Better or For Worse, I'm Losing You. All right, Kit, over to you. Well, and before I get into my pick, I have to say, that's an excellent choice. That's always been one of my favorites. I mean, when he snarls, stop the bleeding now, you you feel it, you hear it. And and to be a little bit of a musical snob, I love the version with Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos where it rocks a little harder. Yeah. I, I love that, you know. And the fact that Cheap Trick, of course, are from my home state of Illinois. So I have to give props to my own people. And the video, right. video is great too. That video is awesome. Yes, it is. Oh. It is. I just it's just it's it's you know, wonderful track either either way, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I've I've got a another, as we said, we're moving into the for better or for worse. Kind of, uh, kind of love. Uh, this is a song uh, from uh, his solo period. Later, became a bit associated with uh, with Wings. Uh, this is a song that I think John probably w- really enjoyed when he heard it because it was honest. You know, it was it was raw for for Paul. Um, and of course, what I'm talking about is maybe I'm amazed. Um, let's hear a little bit of the clip, and then we're going to talk more about it, including the place he was in in his life when he wrote this song.
Okay, well, I mean that's the 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 vocals well, just don't get any better than that. Now let's let's set the scene, and and many of you know this already. He was in a very dark uh, place in his life. It was 1970. The Beatles just broke up. As we all know, it was a very bitter breakup. It was emotional. Uh, and so he and uh, Paul and Linda, uh, who were you know fairly newly married, uh, decided you know they retreated to their farm. And Paul was trying to figure out what the heck to do next. You know, he was used to being in a group all of his life. And he went into depression, um, you know, started drinking a little too much uh, and, and just really went into a, a dark, dark place. Linda, he, he credited many times, helped him out of that place and said, come on, you're Paul McCartney. You know, yes, this, this phase of your life has ended. You've got to start a new one, you know, and, and, and you've got the talent. Uh, you've got the drive. Go do it. You know, and so that's what inspired him to create the McCartney album. And this song, uh, Maybe I'm Amazed, is sort of his thank you to her, you know, and acknowledging the, the, the you know, very hard times uh, that he put her through. Um, what I think is interesting about it is it's not only about, you know, it, it's not saying, you know, and, and you, you loved me and everything was rosy after that and everything's wonderful now. What I think is interesting is that while he acknowledges how she helped him out of this, this dark place, he says, maybe I'm afraid of the way I love you. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm amazed at the way I need you and you're with me all the time. You know, that's another phase, I think, of a relationship. By this time, they were married, of course, starting a family. Um, they were, that this was a deeper level of commitment. And they, I think, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm not married, so I can't say this for sure, but, um, but I get the sense that when you're married, you think, wow, it's, you know, it's not about just me anymore. You know, now you're a team and you're interdependent on each other. That's a scary thought, you know, to have to sort of, Give, you know, sort of surrender a part of yourself to that person to trust that person. And so I think that's what he's talking about in addition to saying thank you, Linda, for, for getting me through that rough time. Um, so it's, it's, yes, it's a beautiful love song, but I think there's, there's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a darker current, uh, undercurrent to it. The other thing I want to point out is I love the piano and the organ in it. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I've been trying to find information if uh, this is the case. This is just my hypothesis that I wonder if Billy Preston influenced him on this, you know, because, of course, Billy had worked with the Beatles on Let It Be and Abbey Road. That was a style of very gospel-influenced kind of piano. And if you listen to the song, there's quite a bit of organ in it. And the way Paul pounds on that piano during the, the, you know, the climax of the song, it's almost like not only is he thanking Linda and talking about the power of her love and love in general for, for getting him out of this dark hole. But it's almost like he's testifying, you know, I mean, he's testifying to people about his experience saying, look what happened to me. This is, this is indeed amazing. Um, And so I'm wondering if, if Billy Preston may have been, you know, maybe some of of Billy's style rubbed off on him. Just a, just a, you know, just a hypothesis. I'm, I'm not so sure. But um, it's, you know, it's still, of course, one of his most popular songs. 
and uh, he plays it in concert. It's just as powerful. The live version that came out that's heard on the radio more, even more now than the studio version, it's a little different. He uses a little bit of a raspier vocal, but it's still that that emotion that he um, has in that song and the way he can modulate his voice from, you know, softer. I mean, he starts out the song in a softer way to when he gets that climax and sings, maybe I'm amazed, you know, it's and uses that raspy shouting voice. It, it just shows how what range he had, not just in terms of, of musically and, and tonally, but in terms of, of kind of an emotive uh, voice. He was just, uh, you know, so good at that, as as is John. And so, uh, and so I, I think this is one of Paul's finest moments as a vocalist, as a lyricist, in a, in a time where he, he revealed something very personal uh, about himself. Yeah, we think uh, of uh, John as being the only one that can do that raspy scream, but, you know, Paul does all the Little Richard songs. I mean, absolutely. you know, he's the one that can master that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely, and that goes back to, you know, and maybe, hey, maybe this will be a, a topic for a future show, this whole tired, John was the rocker, Paul was the, the, the dreamy balladeer, you know, yeah. I mean, I it's, it's, unfortunately, that stereotype is still, you know, a little bit there, and it's songs like this, and then songs like In My Life, yeah. uh, that definitely, I think, shatter that, that stereotype. Yeah, they do. One of the lines that I really love, and maybe I'm amazed, is I'm in the middle of something. Maybe I'm a man in the middle of something that he doesn't really understand. And I think for John, too, at this time, when they actually get into a love relationship, it isn't something they understand because they have been adored and worshipped, but they haven't been in mature relationships. I right. mean, John and Cynthia were separated from each other. She loved him with a mature love, but it wasn't a love that he returned the way he should have. You know, she definitely gave that to him. But did he return it? I don't know. You know, I know he really loved her, but I don't know if it's if he really understood. I think both of them struggled with that. It's a I agree with you. Maybe I'm amazed. A great, great song. Absolutely, and and it's a little bit. It reminds me too of John's Woman. You know, of course, many years later, that it's the same kind of feeling. It's you know, it's that sentiment. Thank you for getting me through this hard time. I know I put you through a hard time. So this is again, this is the the not idealized, overly romanticized version of love. This is hey, you're going to run into some obstacles, right? And you know, but hopefully, love love will overcome. all you need is love, right? Yep. There you go. It's funny because you and I really didn't talk about this ahead of time. We did our research separately, and we didn't share notes or anything, but we chose songs from the exact same three time periods because yeah. my next one for John is going to be from that mature period. And so it's not about you know his hometown or his friends. It's not about raging through love that's angry and falling apart and struggling this is a mature love song and this one really packs a punch because it's a love song from father to son from daddy to his little boy it's john's devoted tribute to sean beautiful boy and when asked what songs he would take to a desert island if stranded for years and years of course paul mccartney said beautiful boy and he said and I sent you this quote earlier this week, people forget that John wrote some pretty nice ballads. People tend to think of him as an an acerbic wit 
as aggressive and abrasive, but he had a very warm side to him, which he didn't like to show in case he got rejected. If I Fell, for example, was very nice harmony number, very much a ballad, and I have to agree with Paul. Beautiful Boy is an exquisite song from that ver- very first sound that you hear of those waves rushing and that very gentle ting of the bell. It is a, an exquisite song. It was selected by Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees to be one of the lullabies that he sang on his nighttime CD for children. And one of my favorite movies, and I know you know what I'm going to say here, Kit. It was featured in Mr. Holland's opus. Mm-hmm. That very difficult relationship between father and son in that movie. And when that's sung and played, wow, it gives you chill bumps. And, of course, Celine Dion recorded it for her child as well. This song was written to quell two little boys' nightmares. One, it was written for Sean to quell his nightmares. But night terror and being afraid and alone in a bedroom at night was something that John was very familiar with. At the end of the song, when he whispers to Sean, good night, Sean, see you in the morning, bright and early, we know that these are the words that John really longed to hear from anybody during those years when he lived on Men Love Avenue in his aunt Mimi and Uncle George's home. Mimi did not believe that children should be mollycoddled. There were no bedtime stories. There were no lullabies. So John sang himself to sleep. Now, Uncle George did always hide a barley sweet, what we would think of as a suck candy, under his pillow at night. But no one was ever allowed to sing that little boy goodnight. So he sang his own lullabies. Um This song really has me at hello because John is giving his son what he never got. He tells us in another song of his that what he's expert in is not loving because he was never loved. But here he goes into this scary woods of unfamiliar territory for his little boy. And he walks into the woods of love and tries to venture forth into this unknown land of love because he wants to do it for his child. Without a doubt, the most quoted John Lennon line is found in this song, Life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Now, is that a unique John Lennon quote? Absolutely not. It was said in the 1800s, and he's just repeating it. But it's really poignant, and it's really meaningful in light of the fact that as John was recording this song, plans were already in progress to snuff John's life out. I mean, as we all know, John's killer did not go to New York just once, but he went twice. And that the plans to kill John were already in progress as he's singing Life is What Happens While You're Busy Making Other Plans. What to me this song says is you can't wait to be happy. You can't wait until you finish the book or you graduate from college or you move to another place, or you have that baby, or you, whatever it is that you guys are waiting for, because life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. It doesn't slow down. It doesn't stop. It doesn't hesitate. It moves toward that sidewalk and that waiting gunman, whatever that is in your life. Here in this song, John is really every man. He's not writing just for Sean. He's not writing just for himself, but he's writing for each one of us. And he's telling us that life is very special and precious, and we need to hold hands when we cross the street and look both ways, and we need to be careful and to value it. 
Now, we all know that it was released on Double Fantasy and it went to the top of the charts after John's death. It was number two in Quebec. It was number 18 in America. It stayed in the top 40 for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, of course, Ben Harper asked if he could record it on Instant Karma. And Feeder, if y'all know the rock band Feeder, covered it for Q Magazine's Lennon CD. But all of that success is really just bittersweet when you think that John's wish to see John, Sean come of age is never, ever, ever going to come true. Um, it's just bitter irony that this song is all about his concern for his child's safety and holding my hand and looking both ways. But while he was recording it at the record plan in New York City in that autumn of 1980, I just wish that someone had been wary of his safety and that someone had been holding his hand or standing on that sidewalk with him instead of walking away. We're going to be able to play a 30-second snippet here, and um, I apologize, but do listen to this song because it's a very powerful one. Let's listen to Beautiful Boy. Well, there it is, Beautiful Boy, a song that evokes layers of feelings. When I listen to it, I hear it as a parent, I hear it as a child, but most of all, I hear it as John's friend, and I wish that history could have changed so that all of those things that he wished for his son in this song could have come true, and he could have known that not only did Sean become the beautiful boy that he wanted him to become, but that John was a beautiful boy as well. So, okay, Kit. Over to you. My goodness. Well, I, and I have to say, just, just to add, I mean, there's not much more I can add to such a wonderful song, but oh, when he when he sings that line, I can hardly wait to see you come of age, but I guess we'll both just have to be patient. I mean, oh boy. I mean, I, I just, it's so hard to listen to now, you know. I mean, it's just obviously nobody knew what was happening and uh, what was going to happen. It, it's heartbreaking, but as you said, it's it's just such a, a beautiful heartfelt song about love for your child yep. and and it, it it is it is it's it's it is gorgeous really is um well my uh my final selection is uh it's going to be a little a, a t- little bit controversial i i would say um as we were just mentioning this is the the sort of later stages of love when you're getting content with each other uh you know you've been together a long time you're reaching you know you're going to grow old together and and uh this is a song that I think Paul wrote about wonderfully and hardly anyone, or at least not, you know, the, the people who are more casual Paul fans, they don't know anything about it. It's a song that I've been championing for a long time, and uh, it's Only Love Remains, and it's from press to play. This is where the controversy comes in, because people, wow, you either love this album or you hate it. <laughs> you know, and a lot of people, unfortunately, hated it. 
Um, and uh, in in a future episode, we're going to be touching on this topic. But I'm I'm going to say that uh, you know I I think it it was a bit ahead of its time ahead of its time and uh, needs to get a second listen. But only love remains was buried in this on this album that everybody was so busy you know, uh, putting down this this album and criticizing it, that this gem of a love song uh, just, just slipped through. It was released as a single, but it, uh, it it fared pretty well in the adult contemporary charts, but that was about it. There was a video made, beautiful video, in fact, um, but it just sort of faded. Paul never plays it, didn't end up in any greatest hits albums. Um, and and it's a shame. So we're I'm giving it the attention it deserves right now. Let's listen to a little bit of it, and then we're going to talk about it. But knowing me, I want you back again and again to the world who lost meaning and love is all. Well, I, I wish we could play a little bit more of it, so I, I urge you all to either uh, to, to get pressed to play or, or go on YouTube and look up the video so you can get the, the sense of the full song. Um, like I just talked about with Maybe I'm Amazed, let me, let me set the scene. Um, remember, by 1985, Paul was in another kind of career milestone, you know, crossroads, I, I should say, in, 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 his, uh, in his singing career. He just came off two projects that didn't do so well. Uh, Pipes of Peace, which, well, Say, 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 uh, the, the big hit off the album, that did very well. But critically, it was it was very mixed, to say the least. And then there was Give My Regards to Broad Street. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, gosh, I, lo- I love Paul, you, you know that. But uh, And the soundtrack was wonderful. Uh, the movie, yeah. So, <laughs> anyway... <laughs> We'll just move on. And so he he really uh, got a, a a critical, you know, drubbing for, for that. Yeah. So he thought, all right, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to work with all new people. I'm going to work with um, Phil Collins' producer, Hugh Patchdom. I'm going to collaborate with Eric Seward of, of 10CC. I'm going to update my sound, do some kind of avant-garde things, just go the other direction. And I think people just weren't, you know, prepared for it. But in the midst of all that was this lovely, lovely song. Um, the version we just heard is the album version. There was also a single version that uh, had um, more keyboards and a sax solo. I, I prefer the album version. Why? Because of, again, its its simplicity. The melody is, is just, you know, it's beautiful. It's a heartfelt uh, vocal performance from Paul. Um, and again, it's it's about when you're together. As long and, and let's face it, when you listen to the song, you can't you can't help but think of Paul and Linda, yeah, and their relationship. That you know, when it all comes down to it, only love remains. You know, it doesn't matter what else happens, and you know the the other things that happen in life. How many friends you have? How many you know? How many cars you have? Big house, whatever. That in the end. It's just the two of you, and love is what 
matters in in the relationship. Um, you know, again, I think his his vocals are just beautiful on this. And in fact, I'm going to right now do something I've always wanted to do. I'm going to quote myself, which I've, I've never had a chance to do, so I'm excited. <laughs> this is an article I wrote about this song from 2010, um, and I wrote about press to play in general, but I wrote about this song uh, and I'm just going to just read a couple of things that I wrote at the time um, that, uh, you know, from from throughout his career, uh, McCartney has demonstrated he is a superior ballad craftsman. And nowhere is this more evident on this gorgeous slow number uh, where he does what he uh, he's doing, what he does best, sitting at the piano and singing simple lyrics straight from the heart. I want you back again and again till the word has lost its meaning, uh, bringing a happy ending to our song. Um, and with his usual skill, his words beautifully imagine when all our friends have gone and we're alone. There's nothing left to shout about. Let tonight be the one we remember. This is about a mature, deep love, you know, that has withstood those hardships and is, and it has, you know, is past those early blushes of love and infatuation. You know, this is, this is something else. Um, and I, I think I really urge you to look at the video because the video is very much focused on Paul and Linda and even kind of shows them represented as like in their older years. And it's it's just a, it captures it very well. I, I think this is one of the most moving songs he ever recorded. He just uh, it's his, as I said, it's his melody, it's his lyrics, it's that that vocal performance, the way he can modulate his voice from that soft voice to the the louder you know, we're not raspy, but 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 a bit louder volume to to emphasize this point. Uh, it's a song that that deserved a lot more attention than it got. Than it got, and uh, so that's uh, that's why I picked it for uh, for my final Paul love song. I, I had never heard it at all, and we found it the other night on YouTube and watched the video and everything, and um, it's really beautiful. I mean, it is. But you know, like you say, I had didn't even know the song existed, so that's too bad. It it just it, as I said, it got buried on on this album. You know, everybody was so busy heaping you know the the criticism and all, and then so it just sort of vanished, you know, yeah. off the charts. And Paul doesn't play it live again. If he's listening, I'd love to hear it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it it really shouldn't be uh, overlooked. It's it's a gorgeous. It, as I said, buried treasure really is. Yeah. Yeah, it is really, really pretty. Well, I definitely think we've given people something to think about. And truthfully, in the end, it's not an either or. I mean, you cannot go wrong with the love songs of either John Lennon or Paul McCartney or the songwriting team of Lennon McCartney, right? Absolutely. And in fact, um, you mentioned a quote earlier that, that Paul said about John's writing. And I love this. I found this. I believe this is from... The 1980 Playboy interview that John did where he talked about If I Fell. And he said, it shows that I wrote sentimental love ballads, silly love songs <laughs> way back when. I love it. How perfect is that? But but that's the thing. They both, uh, in in ways, and, and they actually have more in common than, than they have, uh, than, than you know. I mean, they were both about honesty. They were both about uh, portraying love in a in a different way. And, and all different kinds of love in a unique way. They were both artistic geniuses. What yep. can you say? Yep. And you take a song like We Can Work It Out, 
in which Paul is expressing the optimism and John is expressing his usual pessimism and you put it together and it just works. The yin and the yang, you know, they they really fit together and, and what they do is just great together. And, you know, they were both geniuses, but they were each coming at it from a different angle and, and that's what makes it mesh so well. You know, both giants and they took this world that, when you're talking about Bobby Rydell and Bobby Darren and Paul Anka, it was a it was a different world. It was a little bit smaller. It was a little bit more limited. And they just blow it up and make it huge and make it so big. And then we're inspired to follow in those footsteps and to become more than we are, to become greater. So, Kit, thank you so, so much for being here tonight. And I love the Kitten Caboodle show. Tell them about what we're planning to do in our next show. Well, I can't wait for this. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to take a look at, at uh, we're, we're still working out the details, but songs and albums that deserve a second listen. Kind of like what I was just talking about with Press to Play. Uh, works that were panned by critics at the time and, and, and didn't sell well, weren't understood. And we're going to to defend these these unjustly overlooked uh, albums and songs. So I I think this is going to be a lot of fun. It is, and that will be in April. So the next time that you see Kit or hear from Kit, her book will be in the hands of the publisher. And she will be completely finished and working on Songs We Were Singing, which is coming out in August. What a year you have cut out for yourself. Woohoo! Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, so I'm excited. Oh, I'm excited. I can't wait to see you at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. And then just a few weeks later at Walnut Ridge at oh, it's, Beatles. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. A lot of fun. Well, thank you, my friend. And the question, who is the better songwriter, John or Paul? It's up to you guys, our listeners. Of course, you knew that all along. So if you like the show tonight or if you want to chime in or put your ideas and thoughts and comments in, go to our Facebook page. Kit and I have our own, believe it or not, Kit and Caboodle Fan Club. So go to the Kit and Caboodle Fan Club Facebook page and like us or don't like us and leave us don't your, do thoughts that. <laughs> your thoughts and you can follow kit on twitter at kiddo tool and at beatles geek right kit right that's right absolutely and follow me at jude kessler on twitter and we will try to keep you entertained until next week when my guests are going to be some of the greatest internet magazine editors and bloggers in the known world who work Oh, so hard to keep the 1960s alive and kicking. Kit and I wish all the best for you and yours. Ta-ra and shine on. <laughs>